Welcome back, everybody, to the Italian American Power Hour. And man, do we have a great show for you today! It's the third in our series of four uh, for the Italian American Power Hour telling of Italian American history. And boy, do we have an all star panel! We have every single one of our hosts from the Power Hour. Uh, here tonight, we've got myself and Pat, Dolores, Anthony, Rosella, and even more special than that, we are live and on location in Frost Restaurant in the middle of the Italian section of Williamsburg, Brooklyn. We are enjoying a meal together and uh, hopefully with you guys. So good to have everybody back. How's everybody doing? Uh, I just ate a really spicy pepper. Oh boy! <laughs> oh, in a moment, but careful. <laughs> I mean, I was there five minutes ago. <laughs> Not fun. The green but fryers are hot. Our wine is arriving right now, so you can all uh, sit here and uh, we'll have conversation with you. We'll all eat together, right? Yeah, the listeners and us. A nice special treat. It's, totally. It's honest to who we are. We usually are eating together, or even after recording the shows, we end up eating together. It's true. And so today we've been hard at work uh, building out some exciting new stuff for the future of uh, our platform here, and we decided that we're going to get together and eat. We might as well use the opportunity to bring you this uh, much-anticipated show, like we said, third in the series of four on Italian-American history. For those of you that have listened to us in the past, you've heard parts one and two leading us from the the discovery of the New World by Christopher Columbus uh, all the way through the Great Migration in the 1890s and into the dawn of the Second World War in, in 1941, where we left off in our last two episodes. And if you haven't listened to those, we hope you'll go back into the archives and pick up those two episodes because they are fantastic. Uh, you think they're good? I hope so. <laughs> I hope they are. I think people have really enjoyed them. We, we, got, we got good feedback. Yeah. You tell me. I never heard it. People We do too tell you. That's I don't know what's going on. At the end of this episode, we're just going to do a, a, a moment's pause and then list all of Pat's social media and email so you could tell him how great. Oh, we love that. Yeah, we will. We'll, we'll, call me. Yeah, call him. Oh, yeah. good. Let's that way, remember to do yeah. that. I think that's great. Because every, every, every time we get together, Pat tells us nobody's listening, but we're convinced you are. And we thank know you. you are. We know you are. Yeah. <laughs> Who are you? And Why thank you, you listen to me? You need help. Thank you for the great <laughs> feedback for those of you who constructive criticism included. So, all right, we, we we started the first episodes. It was myself, Pat, and Dolores. I think we enjoyed really digging deep into the history here. We're really happy to have Anthony and Rosella back with us today to finish off this series. You're going to get this episode, which we call Americans of Italian Descent, which covers 1941 to the present. And then uh, the next time you hear from us, you're going to get our Italian-American Power Hour reading list. All of the stuff that we have devoured in, uh, in bringing ourselves to this level of uh, lack of expertise on the topic. So we, we really appreciate uh, everybody out there listening. And guys, we ended the last episode at 1941, and we talked about the years uh, of fascism, um, its popularity and, and decline, both in Italy and the United States. And then, of course, as we all know, even the most casual students of history, December 7th, 1941, changes everything. Uh, the United States is attacked at Pearl Harbor by Japan, declares war on the Axis powers, and uh, in retaliation, uh, Germany and Italy declare war on the United States. 
And uh, you're talking about a time where our population is significant, um, lots of Italian men and women serving the country, a time where we've come out of some of the worst of the institutional racism only to be met as enemy combatants and enemy aliens. So really difficult situation that our forebears find themselves in. Um, you know, this is this is where it all changes, I think. This is to me, this this chapter of the history is the beginning of the community we know today. Um, and I think it all starts with this idea that we are at war with Italy and it's sort of a put your flag in the ground and decide who you are. There's no no going back. Yeah. So I don't know if this is inappropriate, no. but can we um, pause to cheers because our wine was just poured so we can drink? You want to <laughs> Well, no better way to start the show. Ah, now we can talk. Okay, so where was I? You said um, that it's like, uh, because we're at war with our home country, it's kind of we are being pushed. Yeah, this is a breaking point. This is where the story changes to me. This is a fracture in the Italian-American story where we go from being an immigrant group uh, or in a, 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 a group sort of on the fringe to really having to declare who we are and what we're about. And, you know, our loyalty was really questioned. I mean, shortly after the declaration of war, um, Italian, German, and Japanese Americans in significant numbers are uh, registered as a declared enemy aliens. And um, many of them lose their businesses. There are uh, huge communities of fishermen on the West Coast who are prohibited from plying their trade. Their boats are confiscated. Uh, Italians near sensitive areas are either monitored or in some severe cases interred. And uh, it's a real question of the loyalty of our community um, beyond anti-Italianism. This is really um, something different, I think. Those peppers and bushes. We have a strong one over here. We, why do we eat them? I was just thinking that. Like, why do we do that to ourselves? <laughs> we think we're going to beat the peppers. But the peppers <laughs> That's, I think I laughed that hard because that's exactly probably, that's that's right. I've been here more than once and had the hot peppers I've ever had here. Really? I didn't eat They made them extra day. hot today? Yeah. So Italy declares war on the United States, and uh, much like the Japanese and German communities, the U.S. government starts to look with suspicion at this giant community of Italian-Americans living here, many of whom have not assimilated, who, who still speak Italian, um, are not integrated into the, in, into the mainstream. Who were tremendous supporters of Mussolini. Pat's getting to a point, which is, I think we talk about internment a lot, or not we, the five of us, but like people. And it's talked about as if it was a, um, a crime perpetrated against us. And you know what I mean? It always is spoken of in a... Victimized. We were just, yes, victims. And I'm not saying that that's not the case. Yeah, but what, Pat's making a good point. Yes. No, that's not the case. But My grandmother lived through it. And in the 90s, when, when the entire... Movement broke out about Italian internment. I said my grandmother was sort of was ridiculous, and I'll tell you why. My grandmother's first cousin was a PE, was a POW for the Italian Army. He was captured in North Africa, specifically wanted to be captured by the Americans because he heard they had were they treated their business better than the British did. He was shipped, I think, to Arizona. In Arizona, he wrote a letter to I I, I don't know the War Department. This is the story that I had gotten that he had family in Jersey City. He was transferred to Bell Mead, New Jersey, to a POW camp. Wow. My grandmother said it was like a resort. 
My grandmother went there every Sunday. My grandmother said all the all the boys were at war, and the Italian officers were getting together with the American girls, with the girlfriends that were home. My grandmother said they were stunningly handsome. But this is they, different than internment. This is they were oh, prisoners of war. Well, this, yeah. they, well, the wise I mean, but this, this is like is, the attitude of like a Southern Italian guy. Like you put him in a war camp, and he's like, you know, he, he's better, like, better than war. King in the cafe, like, hey, bella, espresso, but some making the eyes at somebody. He's got another family in two weeks. It's you know, we make the best out of any situation. You got to say that about our people. It reminds me of Captain. Corelli's Mandolin. Yes! Great movie. A great movie. Horrible in theory, accent. horrible accent on Nicholas Cage. Yes. And as a student of Italian history in my senior year of high school, waiting for the only movie to create a heroic image of the Italian soldier in World War II, I took my then high school girlfriend who was a Medigan. And I'm like, we have to see this movie. And Nicholas Cage, I don't know what alien language he thought he was speaking. Yeah. It was and Nicholas, if you're listening, uh, Nicholas, if you're listening, please, you need you need to chop off your hand, like, in, in, <laughs> uh, because you you you, you abandon us on that. You're a wolf without a foot. You are wolf without a foot, my friend. But but I want to define what it is that we're talking. All right, about. but let me clarify this. The reason I'm saying this is that when I brought up the, the American internment, Italian American internment in the U.S., right. my grandmother response was her cousin who was in the BLW camp in Bellamy, New Jersey. Her father, which would have been this guy's uncle, had had a stroke. The U.S. gave the guy, uh, the, there was, his name was Janata, the cousin Janata, a pass to leave the POW camp and to come to Jersey City on Sundays. That's how good the United States was. My grandmother and my uncle could sign their cousin, an Italian military POW in Bellamy, New Jersey, who was moved to Bellamy because he requested the Americans to move him closer to his family. They could sign them out and bring them home on Sundays. And my grandmother said the American boys were in horrible situations in Europe. Mm. And how could the Italians were treated here? I mean, it's so indicative of the best in America, how those guys were treated. Well, I mean, this is an issue that I always have with it because, you know, especially when I was at NIAF, you know, this remains an issue. Even while I was there, we were lobbying for a formal congressional apology. And I understand, like, at some point, there's a little sense of we don't have much to complain about as a community, so we might as well find something. Otherwise, we're going to lose cause. But, I mean, 600,000 Italian-Americans out of a community that was in the, the millions and millions at that point are uh, registered as enemy aliens. They are um, detained. Which they were. Yeah, which they were. But, but that's what I'm getting to. But let me finish what I'm getting. Yeah. Uh, but, but, like, but that's what I mean. They were detained. They were relocated, stripped of their property. Many of them had to some of the live stuff under curfew. Are, some of the stuff and a couple of hundred were locked away. Right, but some of the stuff in California was extreme. Yes. It was very... And, yeah. and what I, I said what, what do you mean? Because the California days have been... Like... There was more... From what I... And I am not an expert, again, an academic in this area, but the California Italian-Americans, like the Joe DiMaggio, San Francisco, the enemy, quote-unquote, enemy aliens on the West Coast seems to have gotten much more severe treatment yes. on the East Coast. I mean, you would have had a lock up half of Jersey City. True, well, right. plus, but let's not forget, the West Coast was, was far more... Of a of Ready a target, gone. we have an actual word. But it was also far more of a target yeah. because it was under sure. you know serious threat from the Japanese. And let's not be, let's be let's not be too passive here, like you say, and we point out in the last episode, there were many many Italian Americans marching around in black shirts leading up to this thing. We had a, there was a fascist school in Jersey. Yeah, City. but wait, it's even better. 
if you study what Mussolini's plans for war were, they involved submarine attacks on the United States, on New York. I mean, this was this was Mussolini wasn't like, well, I'm going to go soften these people because there's a lot of my countrymen there. They were at war with the United States, and there weren't enemy aliens. So I I sort of split my vote on this because I while I think it's good that we talk about this history and make it known because the internment of Germans and Japanese is known and is so popular of a topic. Um, at the same time, I'm not quite sure it was an unjust or completely unjust situation. The Japanese, so, to me, from where I sit right here with my with my glass of wine here, um, he did a lot of things for Italy. Um, I think he got involved with Hitler out of out of necessity, out of like you know I gotta eat you before you eat me kind of thing. Um, I do think he had good intentions for the country because, you know, he created a sewer system. He created, a pop, you know, popular Le Casse Popolare. He created a housing. He created so many things. You cannot deny... Oh, he that created he the modern republic. Yeah, everything, you cannot they just deny did everything after. that he was a renaissance yeah. man in They just Italy. did all the same stuff he did without posters and marches. Yeah, but I just did. think that, like, he, he got, you know, like any dictator, you get drunk with power and you start, you know, fearing that people will take you over if you don't take them over and it just gets all out of hand you know not, not, diff- not very Russia. different by with what you know is going on today so if we just if if we really want to think about it it's the same ideals applied differently in a different time but you know that's I mean, just how how uh, crazy dictators work i've always been easy on mussolini on a lot of ways, because I I do think there was a lot of positives that came out of the fascist experience, and I hate the fact that popular history wants to go black or white on the yeah. argument and say we're well, good or bad. A lot of people just put them in the same boat with Hitler, yeah, and, and that's it's not, not it's not that's necessarily not, true. That's not fair. But I will say this: when it comes yeah, to the Italian American community, first of all, I think a lot of what unified us in the fifties and sixties and our sense of institutionalism came from this idea of a, of a, a fascist investment in the idea of being Italian American. They, they put a lot into this nationalism here, and I think it actually. Uh, in many ways, we were the beneficiaries of it more than the Italians were because we didn't have to whitewash it out, that sense of pride, after the war. But I think if we're talking about the internment of, of Italian-Americans, I do think if the opportunity was there, Mussolini would have used the Italian community to bring on to the United States. Because, because, yeah, because it was, exactly it, it was necessary. I mean, it was, because, it was a war well, measure. because he wanted, he wanted to succeed. Yeah, of course. He just yeah. wanted to get ahead. So as, I can't blame Roosevelt for suspecting. But for a community that went out of its way to support him. Yeah. yeah I mean, how many very popular here. Born in the 30s, and I grew up when they were older gentlemen in the 20s, were named Benito in New, New Jersey. I mean, Mussolini, when uh, when my great grandmother's twin boys were born, he gave her six hundred lira. Yeah. To to buy a and she used that money to buy a, a brass crib for them because you know she made boys to go to war. That was the war for birth. They, and, and, if, and if you policy. named one Benito, I think you got seven hundred. You That's know, fantastic. like that was how what it worked. An, what an ego here's, bonus. Here's a good personal anecdote. So my grandfather, who I told you was a prisoner of war in Ethiopia, he um, up until like the end of his life, we, you know, I was very young, but but my mom tells me that he would start talking about the war. And she says, when he started talking about the war, I knew it was time for me to go to bed because he wouldn't stop. And he supported Mussolini up until, like, so all his life. So my grandpa lived in uh, New York for a long time, right? So what should America have done with somebody like that at that time? 
clear us? Like, just it, what? What is the? Well, like, 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 we had a mobilized now. fifth column. Yeah, uh, you I mean, want, wait, that's wait, wait. my that's my blood. What? That's my but, grandpa. But hold on, I can hold say, on. My family, you know, my grandma's cousins, and we are we are in Brooklyn. My grandma's cousins donated their. My grandma's American-born cousins donated their wedding rings when they did the fashion oh, yeah. collection of wedding yeah. rings. Yeah. Um, uh, for the war in Ethiopia, the people who really were the, who, who who were really the least engaged with the Japanese Americans, and they the ones who were rather in camps. Yeah. The the German Bund, which was the the German American group that supported Nazism, had this huge rally in oh, gosh, Square yeah. Garden. Absolutely. I mean, you ever see the the film of that? It's it's, it's frightening. You're, you're you're watching. I mean, look, we we always talk about how we want to bring. Uh, pertinence to the topic and bring our culture and our cultural experience to our audience and, and make it reflect uh, their their real lives. You talk a lot about the radicalization of uh, Islamic combatants living in the United States, living in Europe. I mean, this is what happens. This is real stuff. You, you do have people. You have divided loyalty. Yeah, you have divided loyalty. It's a real thing. I get what you're saying, but a different scenario, right? I think well, I'm saying I'm kind about of, divided loyalties or sure, yeah. or, or bifurcated loyalties. Right. Yeah. You know, the, your your adopted country is at war with your home country. Right. And and you know, you you make a great point to transition, right? Your adopted country is at war with your home country. You you have. Many people who do have divided loyalties. You have posters popping up in Italian neighborhoods around the country, exclaiming, "Don't speak the enemy language." You have this, you know, this great shame to your language, to your culture. But at the same time, the largest percentage of the American fighting force that goes overseas to fight this war is Italian American. Right. So once again, like so World War One, yeah, we disproportionately are represented. This time, we're the most disproportionately represented. We're the largest force, and many of these guys, my grandfather included, are going to end up fighting not just in the Pacific or France or Germany uh, or North Africa, but through their own towns. Yeah. That to me, I just got chills. It's unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. So we're not all fascists. No, no, no. I, Obviously, a lot of no, us the, are loyalists. I, I think but, most Americans are loyal. But there's a strain. A yeah. I think the vast strain. majority. Of, I'm saying, I think the vast majority of Italian Americans were pro Mussolini until the Declaration of War, and then they kind of felt like idiots because the guy that they had mm. support. But not. I think there's some other part. But there's a difference between being sympathetic to Mussolini and being fascist, right? Mm-hmm. Actively mm-hmm. wearing the black shirt. Fascist. I agree with that. So I, I think a lot of it was just people saying the guy's getting the he's getting the job done. Yeah, but I want to talk about the situation here. I think the majority of the Italian American community, while they might have been sympathetic to Mussolini before the racial laws or before the declaration of war, I think it's pretty clear that the vast majority of this country was ardently loyal and patriotic and clearly, you know, it's no coincidence that we represent the largest part of the of the military forces. So then like did we deserve our internment or not? I feel like we're we're contradicting ourselves. No, which but is fine. I, I don't That's think what deserve, deserve is. is not deserve is not. So what right. is it? The question is, were the Americans justified in being concerned about the possibility of a fifth column in the Italian American community? I think the answer to that is yes. Right, and okay. consequently, they reacted to that by creating internment camps. Yes, you've got these huge numbers of Italian Americans now going overseas, and so many of them going to their own homes and. Uh, whenever I think about the Italian American experience in World War II, to me, it's not just the don't speak your language or the, the idea of internment, but the idea that you would be put on a boat and sent back to your hometown. Many people, my grandfather included, for the first time in their lives, 
uh, going back home, but in combat. So we're here in, in the neighborhood that I was born in that my grandfather came to when he got to this country. And uh, it's an appropriate place because I ate here with him many times, so I can tell the story that I, I find something I'm really proud of. My grandfather was uh, in the U.S. Army, uh, fought through North Africa, fought through the invasion of Italy, and in the middle of the night, uh, when I guess he was in Salerno at the time, and you know the town he was born in is uh, in into the mountains from Salerno, and he basically, however, he acquired a truck full of rations. I don't know, and I, I wouldn't ask, but he he in the middle. He did it in the Brooklyn way, I guess. But in the middle of the night, he took a truck full of rations to his town and uh, fed the entire town. And my dad tells a story. Wow. Yeah, it's amazing. My dad tells a story that when he went back, when my dad went to the first time in 1979, that the people who were kids during the war when my grandfather was there came out and remembered him and were so emotional and so moved that they threw a parade for him the next day. What? And they made my dad and my uncle put on their military uniforms and march to the town. My grandfather, because oh my he had gosh. saved these people and you know fed them for the first time in God knows how long. You That's also insane. understand the Germans turned on the Italians very quickly after September 1943. Yeah. yeah. So they went from becoming allies to enemies overnight, and then they went from becoming allied troops who were stationed in, in Italy to all of a sudden en enemy right. combatants. But at the same time, your grandfather was probably a loyal fighter in the... Oh, yeah, my grandfather was the most patriotic American you could find. In the U.S. In the, Army. In the American yeah. Army. Yep. But for him... He, it was not a matter of the U.S. Army versus the Italian Army. It was my my family's dying here, and it wasn't black and white for him. No, and it wasn't black and white. I don't like him. War is not a black and white thing. Like nobody wants to to go to war. Nobody wants that to be the circumstances of their country, of their lives. You know. I hear a lot of stories about these Italian Americans who were back there in Italy. Yeah. Some of them knew their family. Some of them meeting their family by accident. You know, Crazy. you're in a theater of war, and you're interacting with the person who ends up being your cousin. I don't know how you handle that. I really don't know how you handle that. I mean, I find this 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 struggle's got to be incredibly overwhelming to these guys. It's something like a civil war. But I think that internally. I had wanted when we were discussing earlier when you brought about don't speak the, the enemy's language. Um, a priest friend of mine who had a, as a pastor of a parish um, that was founded in the 1890s, Monsignor Joseph Ambrose in the Archdiocese of Newark. And they were doing the research for the parish's, I guess it was the 120th anniversary. They came across in the 30s, there were a number of letters written to the Archdiocese in Newark asking the diocese to pressure the then pastor to have less services in Italian. These were from Italian American parishioners who'd be first generation to force their, the Italians, which would be, I guess, their parents' generation, to speak more English. Wow. So they're like, please cut down. This is too oh. Italian. We're I never Americanized. heard that. We want more in English, and having all these like novenas and everything else in Italian is only kind of dragging out, is kind of preventing the assimilation process. So there was a lot of internal, we want to be assimilated, which we never talked about. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I think... I think it's a, I think it's a breaking point linguistically. I think it, I think I think those people that were that were maybe on the fence about the language, are confronted with this idea that it's foreign and enemy, and it might push them in the the sort of uh, linguistic assimilation camp. 
But I think you're right. I think that this was a trend that was going on anyway. I think we were assimilating. Is that the so so you would not agree? What I was going to say is, is that the generation that stops teaching its kids to speak Italian? I think it is. Yeah. I, I think the past thing so is. So before that, kids I think the past saying they, they might have been on the route anyway. That was the, the kids were asking for it. Like my grandfather tells a story about being in like third grade before the war, and his family. He's, in, he's born in Brooklyn. My mom's father. And he says him and his older brother are in the same class in school because they don't speak anything but Sicilian, right here on Knickerbocker Avenue. Wow. And he finally comes home to his mother one day and he's like, Ma, we got to talk English because we're sitting in the back of the room like two tools and they're not even paying attention to us. But like, they were born here and they didn't speak English. So I think it's I think it's a wow, what beginning of change. Uh late thirties. Yeah, I mean well, hold on a minute. They didn't speak Italian. That's that's they spoke their regional language. Their regional language sound effect for the but, yeah, exactly. like, <laughs> but that was the generation that like, you know, they their parents spoke Italian. They vaguely have these memories of Italian. They said they only spoke it when they didn't want me to understand. Mm-hmm. They would close it. I would hear it a lot, but you know, you wouldn't know what the, first, the, the first meant. American generation. Mm-hmm. Yes, the first American generation. Right, so that would so be the roughly, war right so, after World War. Yeah, so people, people yeah. around my parents' age, give or take, you know, five years around my parents are in their 60s, so give or take five, five six years, they were they were that generation where they were embarrassed. But people that, my, my parents came over, my father came over in 69, my mother came over in 78, and, you know, there was no shame in speaking Italian, like everybody spoke Italian, and then when I was born, they only taught me Italian, and I did not know English when I went to school. I've always believed oh, the Italians wow. that came after the war years, like oh, my my like reverted back. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. totally reverted back. My father-in-law came in the '60s. My mother-in-law's mother came after the war. There was no shame in speaking Italian after that. I mean, for them, it was like yeah, because of Mussolini. That was Mussolini's building of nationalism in his own country. Yeah, but it's no, interesting that the people that were here during the war. That were that, sure. and before but were already on the cusp of losing and giving it up, and then the people that came after never had. To. I think it was because of the microcosms. I think it was because of neighborhoods like this, like where we are right no. now. Well, like right. You, didn't, Jersey, you didn't need to speak Italian you, you to, speak to speak English here. You didn't speak English, yeah. English in downtown Jersey. Right. State. That's what she's saying. Yeah. You didn't need to. See, no, you just didn't need to. My my grandmother said America was known as a place where you forgot how to speak Italian and you never learned English huh. because you had a, a bunch of people working together, like a bunch of women in her situation, a bunch of women in factories from Naples, from Sicily, from Puglia that nobody spoke Italian. Nobody knew how to speak Italian. They all spoke dialects. Then they all adapted. Regional language. They all spoke I'm sorry. Pardon me. They all spoke regional languages. And then they adapted this, this Italianish that, that, you know, came which about. Is, which is a pigeon that we don't recognize. I, 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 I think it's a fascinating episode in and of itself. And then we have words. We have words like ashapa bagana. Yeah. Bag is a big word. Now, we've talked about this before. Bacauza. Bacauza, yes. Bacchumenda. Bouchada. Yeah, Monty was Lou Monty Italian. Lou Monty Italian, because it was a pan-Neapolitan, because Neapolitan was a lingua franca, and you could speak from northern Calabria all the way to Molise and Abruzzo and, and Mussolini created the second Lazio. And it worked, because it was mutually intelligible. Yeah. But I got back to the Mussolini factor because I think that Mussolini built an Italian national sense in the 20s, 30s, and 40s that the kids who were raised during that when they came to America did not feel I have to speak. They didn't, they had more 
self-assuredness. That's a good point. Yep, and that's why their kids continue to speak Italian. Not to mention, not to mention, you have the post-war expansion of Rye, both radio and television. It's uh, it's available. You know, Italian movies. I mean, the people that came here in the forties. Let me let me give you another story. In the seventies, 18th Avenue in Bensonhurst had a movie theater that showed Italian films. Yeah, had uh, was full of stores with Italian signage with record stores everywhere you were essentially in Italy I mean we, we see the same thing we capture the same things if you go to if you go to Brighton Beach today in 2018 almost 2019 it's not America yeah. it's Russia yeah You're my not- father always says that he's like I, I knew when I went back to Italy for the first time and after that I related to it and my father's not great Italian speaker sorry dad um but he he does okay, and he was like, I knew I related to it because I grew up in an Italian village. It was in the middle of Brooklyn, but right. it was an Italian village. This right. was an Italian village. Yeah, this was this was like a colony. Yeah, like an Italian but, colony, but this, but this weird argument. mixed Italian colony, which yeah. was which is almost like a richer cultural which experience. Becomes, and that's the point of this episode. Its own. Italian American culture. Exactly. Here we are, formed out of Neapolitan, Sicilian, Genovese. This, that, the, the regional languages merged together into what I, I think Pat so wonderfully titles Lou Monte Italian. Our cultures merge together. Our recipes merge together. We are becoming our own culture. Look at what we're eating today. We're at Frost Restaurant, right? And like, you ordered something Sicilian. I ordered something Neapolitan. It's all this like uh, this minestrone of uh, of food genres that blend together. That you know, like chicken marsala and all these yeah. you know all these crazy dishes that we know as comfort food, but in Italy they would like you know make fun of it this a little is, bit. This is when we go from Italian immigrants to Italian Americans. I have an interesting. Right. The Cabrini sisters, Mother Cabrini sisters, went to start the school at Lady Mount Carmel in East Harlem, which was in the 20s the largest Italian community in the United States. The Italian immigrants wanted them to leave. They left the parish, and the sisters of charity, which was an Irish orphan, because the Italian parents with the Mother Cabrini's nuns were too Italian. There was too much Italian in the school. It's a story that I've heard. And they wanted their kids to be forced to speak more English. Why? It's an interesting, if the story pans out, the urban legend. It's an interesting concept. I think that there, there is definitely that moment, and it's the moment we're talking about here, after the war and into the 50s, and, and even into the 60s, I think, where we've got significant numbers of Italians fleeing the more ravaged Italy to come here, and they're building a sort of regenerated Italian community, because they are the ones that are going to keep the language alive in the future, uh, and, and really keep our culture so um, so strong, but you have these people that have been here for now one or two generations who are on the cusp of assimilation and who are uh, focusing on English and, you know, eating American foods and bringing them into their life. And this is the this is the era of change for our community. This is but, the era but, of blending. Well, let me just some kind of um, ideas. I've spoken to a lot of people in Italy who talk about the uncle or the aunt who came back from America who spent 20 years in America and then goes back to Italy for a number of years. And they would all wind up being called Blank and Medellin. Yeah. And a lot of them, um, somebody, I forget where it was, he said his uncle left Italy as Giovanni and he came back as Jack. <laughs> because being an American, 
had an, an air of, uh, yeah. of what's the word I'm looking for. Sophistication. You were sophisticated. You were a little sure. higher up. Yeah. You had a little, yeah. Well, Dolores is a Dolorata. Mm-hmm. And today she sits in front of us as Dolores. Right. You know, we, we all, I think, all people of our needs. That, how many people that settled in back in the People, I mean, someone told me about their town. It's like a little aristocratic touch. If you sure. Been in oh, to that. follow Americano. That's yeah. the whole song. Exactly. Sure. Whole song. Exactly. And then today, exactly. you're it, like today, I, I walk around Molly body and it's like uh, a new kid is born. Her name is Madison. <laughs> yeah. Nowadays, the Italian names are crazy. They name it. They name people after all kinds of weird well, stuff. I, I, another guy that I know told me a story about his grandfather. Uh, his grandfather's contemporary, so it would be someone born in the teens or twenties. The family went back. And they brought the word weed, not as in marijuana, but as in actually the stuff that grows in your grass that you want to pull out. Weed back to the town, because I guess the town word is malherba, the weed. Yeah. And that he was just called a weed. Yeah. And it kind of worked. He said the same thing with Abeg. Abeg. Because Booster had two functions. Booster was an envelope. Booster mm-hmm. was a paper bag. And creating the word and adapting the word bag Grip specified what 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 it actually was, and I think so. There's also across there's there's, there's a culture that's saying exploit. Yeah, the other point that I want to bring up is that they were mixed neighborhoods. They weren't always mixed blocks. Like in Fifth Street in Jersey City, they were right. all from Orlando Sana. There were yeah. certain blocks that were all from Center Street. Was almost all Sasana. What happened was that for the first time, you met people from a different region. Because if you're in an isolated part of Calabria in the 1890s. Two villages over might be a two-day walk with bad shoes and horrible roads. So now, to meet somebody who was up at Sais or Bares, besides the fact that your languages were not mutually intelligible, it was like a completely foreign culture. Post-war Rye Italy, that kind of foreignness is not there anymore. Yeah. So America became, within America, an Italian melting pot. Yes. At that time, which didn't even exist in Italy. And that's when, mm. I think that's when we finally start to define ourselves as an as a Italian-American community that becomes the community with institute. You know, it's funny because like, I have this big collection, and a lot of the stuff in the, um, in the pre-war era that is collective, you know, Sons of Italy, um, Independent Sons of Italy, or um, Italo League, or the Italo-American this, or Americans of Italian this, it's really after the war that we start to see this clear leaning towards the term Italian-American to define who we are. I think that's when it comes out. Um, and, you know, you talk about exporting back our culture and those Americanized Italians, Americans, if you will, the Italian idea, who went back and, and their affect. But there's another great topic that comes out of that, which is, you know, now we're talking about in Italy of the post-war era, that's going to be obviously, uh, I mean, it's just a, a, a ravaged war zone um, and one that's going to rely heavily on American investment through the Marshall Fund and the, the Fund for European Recovery um, that the United States obviously supported m- all of Western Europe with. But I remember my great-grandmother telling me stories about how she would send packages back uh, to Italy after the war at the behest of like larger Italian-American organizations and she would wrap them in bolts of material which we had in abundance and they had none of and send them with that because even the material they used like the, the, the industrial material they used to wrap them for shipping 
was more valuable than they could afford to have for cloth making and things like that. I mean, I have like sacks of wheat. Um, and I have the old antique sacks, you know, paid for by the U.S. government yeah, or post I, have one of those. I mean, it's yeah. just interesting. Uh, Drew, excuse me, Drew has an aunt um, who is actually a nun in Rome, and she brought us one, and it says, "Yeah, she's, she's, yeah, yeah." I mean, she's from here. She's from, you know. Uh, oh wow! I think Brooklyn. I think it's his dad's side, but it says. Um, I don't think it's this property of the U.S. government. It's something like what you just yeah. blah, 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 the U.S. government. Supported by the funds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. provided by the yeah. U.S. government, something like that. There's these great posters that I have of, you know, reminding the people, uh, and reminding people that, uh, in Italy, that, that they have this community here. And, and, and a lot of that was fundraising in the Italian community. I mean, there's these great, like, um, uh, copper postcards that Italians were able to purchase and send back to Italy. And it was a donation. It was actually, they were actually donating the copper Mm. to Italian recovery. Um, But on the, as much as you have the plus side of our support of Italy's rebuilding and Italy's burgeoning republic, uh, you also have the 1948 elections. It's the first general elections in the history of the Italian republic. And it looks like the communists are going to win. And the CIA puts a ton of money into making sure that that doesn't happen because the Iron Curtain is fast closing. And when the CIA realizes you could spend as much as you want on the election, it may not help, they enlist the Italian-American community. And they go to all these organizations, they go to all these social clubs and mutual aid societies, and they craft these stock letters. They have letter-writing campaigns. Um, you know, dear cousin Vito, please don't vote for the communists. It's a lie, blah, 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 blah. Um, and it actually swings the election. And, mm-hmm. and and I don't know if it's necessarily the Italian-American um, influence that does it, but it's fundamental in the psychology of the Italian Republic even today. I mean, this you can see videos of some of these guys who were out there campaigning for what they thought was going to be a worker's paradise, and they're crying 50, 60 years after in these interviews because they feel like that was stolen from them. And you know, Italy was always a reluctant sort of member of the West, you know, it was, it was, it was sort of on the cusp. I mean, it, it was the only country in the West that had a strong communist party, even after the war, had a strong socialist party, had the great um, compromise where they actually brought them into the government, was the first Western country to do that. So you could see um, the sort of hesitancy in how we're looked at after that. I mean, obviously, we enjoy... Um, great affinity in, in a lot of parts of Italy, but in the political class, I think the Italian-American community was seen as very right-wing and, and very negatively having impacted their, their their vision. But let's come back from Italy, and let's come back to the United States. The war's over. Um, we, we, we're talking about this idea of assimilation, and what starts to happen is, I guess like in any assimilation process, not only are we taking on qualities of the wider American society, but the wider American society is starting to reflect us. So like, what, the episode we did back in the archives, you can listen about food products. We talked about Chef Boyardee. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Chef Boyardee um, fed the U.S. Armed Forces with canned spaghetti and meatballs. Frank Capra created all of these war films um, that defined the American experience around the psychology of war. Frank Sinatra, uh, at the at the end of the war, creates his uh, We're All Americans campaign about sort of um, basically social reunification. These start, people start to become mainstream America. You know, I always say it's like Sinatra, pizza, that's amore. Um, the late 50s into the 60s, Louis Prima, these are people that 
to every other American, their American mainstream. And I think that's a, a huge time for us. This is where we, this is like our a real ascendant. What do they say that every uh, Italian American house in those years had two pictures, one of Sinatra and one of the Pope? Right? I, don't, I don't buy into that. I think, I think no, because I'm sick of the Sinatra canonization. Why? Wow. Because, because strong I'm words sick. for a New Jersey guy. No, because, I mean, I don't know how, how far down this road I want to go because. I think we've had this. Because you don't want to be lynched? <laughs> no, no, listen. I don't care if it's, <laughs> he's not afraid of it. Me, I am not backing down, especially when I know I'm right on something. So I'm not going to give a centimeter <laughs> because my math's not good enough to give a small enough. I, I, I'm interested in why you. Well, what did he do? What did he do? I mean, what, what did. And you know, Frank Sinatra's father in law from his first marriage, his best friend to my great grandfather. Because Nancy Sinatra, the wife, her parents were actually godmothers for my great aunt. Wow. But I mean, um, he stood out of World War II. That's true. Um, I know people in Hoboken, and um, I mean, they weren't there after canonizing when he was a kid. Um, he, he, he didn't espouse being from Hoboken until later in life. Um... You know, uh, but this is the point. There's a lot, there's, there's a lot of the generation who embraced Frank Sinatra was the Anglophonic Italian American generation who doesn't understand Italian. Yeah, bingo. And he was a, he was they related to him. He he was he, he Frank Sinatra. If you go back and read any of the stuff about him, I mean, he seemed like he'd be a lot of fun to hang out with, but he doesn't seem like a guy you'd really like. He doesn't seem like a guy you'd really want to grow close to. I don't think he was very I mean, close to anybody. But for us as a community, he was. He broke beyond mainstream. And yes, he was, uh, he was, was, he was the first guy who was beyond acceptable. Like we, right. we clung to Columbus as we talked about in the previous episodes because he was acceptable. We cling to Sinatra because he was enviable. So he was the idol of the entire. Country. I, I, I gotta take. I gotta take. I'm, I mean, no, but that's a fact. I mean, we, it was, he was enviable. Yeah, right. yeah. But before a community that self obsesses over family and family values, that was not the banner he cast. No, but that's the point. You're talking about his character. Yes. Yeah. We're talking about he was the first Italian American to be, that, to be accepted in the mainstream as a as a superstar. That's not just an Italian ethnic. And he like he kind he didn't. He didn't have to. And they tried to get him to change it. Like Dean Martin could not keep what it was. Martino, no. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. It, it, it's. Tony it's yeah, but, they all changed it, but he did. Yeah, but he was like, wasn't baptized Toto either. People have stage names. No, but come on, that's a different thing. Yeah, but I mean, that's, that's, that's very different. You can read about it. They changed their name to be acceptable. Antonio Benedetto. But I understand right. what you're saying. Right. What you're saying just, makes sense. He's not a, he's not a character for hero worship if you deconstruct who he actually was. Yeah, but, but Italians, I'm sorry. Like, I mean, we are talking about sympathy really, towards Mussolini here, so, you know, same episode. No, no, no. Like, the Italian family values and the Italian American and family values that we know, you know, that we idealize are all very different. We're all just people at the end of the day. Sure, and even, yeah. uh, you know, the Italian family values, those men went to war. They had other families. They went to work in... My, my grandfather's like, generation went off to Venezuela. And, and they, you know, had their little... sure. These are these are who we... This is also who we are. We can't... We, we wish it was uh, something different. Yeah, but why do we embrace... 
why are we so hung up on entertainers and entertainers? I know where you're going, John. Why? Why? Well, are I think we, John's trying to explain how the Italian American culture grew and assimilated, and these people gave no. They brought it out. They, in my opinion, it's like Mr. Monogatti on the honeymoons. Well, he is the, the Frank Sinatra was a a a gateway to a larger community. Yeah, that gave people outside exactly. of large communities like New York and New Jersey and Chicago. These Italians aren't that bad. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Right. Was, exactly. To me, the idea that uh, you can have performers on TV, you know, Dean Martin, Tony Bennett, and Perry Como, and Frankie Lane, and all these people who are mainstream American acts, you know, Louis Prima and Keely Smith, uh, Louis was singing Italian stuff even throughout the Second World War when it was not considered a politically smart thing to do. And they're the hottest show in Vegas in the 50s. They are the coolest thing in the world. But I think the big guy that's often forgotten, Jimmy Durante. But did Jimmy Durante identify as Italian-American? Uh, I think so. I think he identified as Italian-American, but I think this generation of guys... Look, like I, this is a weird comparison, right? But I remember growing up when they introduced the Latin Grammys. And Jennifer Lopez was big, and what was that guy? The, the, uh, Ricky, Ricky Martin. Martin. El Nino. Yeah, I mean, Wait. you know, and and, oh, and, no. it, and I. Sorry, that's a storm. Yeah. <laughs> that was like a really big storm. <laughs> it shows how much we were listening to the Latin Revolution. <laughs> but, I remember, you know what? Because there was. We were listening to what? Angelo Venuto no. instead. Stop it! This came from somewhere. <laughs> it was a Latin storm. I mean, but I think that that like I remember when that came out, the the Latin Grammys. And I remember thinking, like, wow, how cool is it for these people that their culture, which I don't remember even accessing as a kid growing up, is now becoming this, like, real, um, sort of accepted but exotic, but, like, people are dancing the Macarena, Hold right? So, I, I have a contrary thing. About yeah, that. Hispanics are a buying group in the American economy. That's what gave them place at the table. It wasn't an America that was predisposed to welcoming this as a new mold, yeah. tile in the mosaic. I think it, it's. I think if you take all the, the points of Hispanics at the table, they were marketed to Italian Americans. were never. I don't really feel ever marketed to. I think you're right, but I think that there's a difference in that. Yes, they were marketed to, and I think they still are today. And I think the Latin Grammys and the, the Latin version of People Magazine or whatever it is. I think they're marketing tools, but I think at the initial point, which I'm trying to compare to where we were in the in the fifties, it was more a matter of the mainstream American culture. Um, becoming more open to this stuff. It was becoming more familiar. And you look at, like, the idea that the pizzeria becomes a normal place for regular Americans and not just a product sold out of Italian bakeries. You know, the the, the most famous Mouseketeer was Annette Funicello, and she did an Italian record. And Connie Fran... Oh, I was just going to say, about Connie Franz. Yeah. But I think, there's a, I think Annette Funicello was a version. Connie Franz was a concetta. Yeah. Yeah, they all had, just like... Just like, the, just like everybody made the jokes. My cousin had the accordion happen. Yeah, I wanted to go play the accordion because Connie Francis played the accordion. But that's my point. It was cool stuff. Right. Sure, but I think I think one factor that that has to be incorporated into this is that did Americans? I mean, I guess yes. Italian Americans became more American, but Italian Americans became more less foreign because Italian American participation as was it the largest ethnic group in World War II or Italian American. That's fighting for sure. Yeah. So if you have someone from Tennessee or Mississippi or Idaho. Or Montana or Arizona, who's never met an Italian American. Now they, they, very, they now they have. Yeah. And that guy Tony from Brooklyn is funny. Yeah. And, and I wonder whatever happened to him. We were in basic training together. And I think what happened was our our boys in the service 
basically were the cultural ambassadors. Yeah, you're right. And I think that had, so the post-war era, the Italians weren't so foreign because our reach had been expanded so much as a fact of, of, of being mixed up with everybody else in the army. Yeah, I think you're right. And I, I think that I think we become more American, but America becomes a little bit more Italian. Sure. I think that's the point of change in this whole era that we're talking about because, you know, you think about the 50s and into the 60s, and we're developing as a community that's now sort of comfortable being out there. We are uh, integrated more but still discernibly different. We're still considered a true minority. I think if you take the honeymooners and you take Mr. Monocotti, so he's kind of like the friendly, funny, he, he's, he's, an, he's a character we can all identify with. Yeah. Maybe he's a stereotype, but he's an endearing stereotype. Yeah. And probably a very accurate stereotype. Yeah. And if you take Lou Costello, you took the word Mr. Botch Group, that, I mean, that is, it's exact same thing, because I'm sure that there were non-Italian Americans who walked, walked into that bakery who met that kind of character. Yeah. And, you know, there's a portion of our community who screams, of course, it's stereotyping. And it might be stereotypical, but it's very, very accurate. Yeah. Like, and it's very, very funny. It's <laughs> kind of what, you know. No, Gates Ali said that, and we had him on, uh, we did a two-part episode with him on the Italian-American podcast. And he said, like, the, the thing is, we're basically our, you know, our own enemy, which is we, we hate these depictions at the same time. We find them really funny because... Because we're familiar. They're yeah, familiar. And we know, that there's, we, there's, we know that there's some kind of truth in it, and it, it makes us laugh. So we're a little more... We're a little more like, eh, whatevs. You <laughs> brush it off because it is endearing, and it, and it is familiar, and it is nostalgic. And you know, This I, is a, a conversation, too. Like, oh, we want to yeah. do a movie episode. Yes. Don't get me started on that. Well, we have, we have different opinions on these movies. We could, That's a great episode for us to do. Movies is a whole series. That's that yeah. thing, the movie, debating yeah. the movie. That's a whole, that, really... that'd be a good one. We'll need a bottle of, like, whiskey for that one between the five of us. But John, off mic, you were mentioning uh, the relationship which, between uh, President Kennedy and Sinatra. Yeah. I wonder if you wanted to... Yeah, that's a great point. Talk I mean, a little bit about that. That's, like, to me, the, the whole crux and dichotomy of this this entire era, right? Like, we're becoming mainstream. Sinatra, whether you love him or hate him uh, in this group, is um, sort of the ambassador for that. He, he's cool. He's popular. And... In the lead-up to the 1960 presidential election, he lends his incredible star power and mm -hmm. his gang to President Kennedy's campaign, uh, or then, then Senator Kennedy, John F. Kennedy's campaign. And, uh, you know, Sinatra is out there fundraising, raises a ton of money for the Kennedy campaign, um, stumping, created a, a theme song for the campaign, did everything possible to lend himself and his star power to this election. And when Kennedy gets elected, it's decided that they're going to have a, a celebratory party, I think, at Sinatra's estate in um, Palm Springs. And Kennedy's brother, Robert F. Kennedy, the future attorney general, he sort of identifies Sinatra too closely with organized crime and says to his brother and his father, you can't be around this guy anymore. And we sort of we've used him for what we need him. And after, so Sinatra has a... If I recall correctly, an entire helicopter landing pad built, yes, so just that the for president Kennedy. can arrive yeah. at his estate, yes, and for this party, and he cancels on, and he cancels on, and he goes to Bing Crosby's house, which yeah. is appropriate. Yep, white um, Christmas. Well, yeah, exactly, Perfect. super white Christmas mm -hmm. on many levels, and I think that's really the you know you, you hit the nail on the head. That's kind of the point of it. We're here. We're 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 American, but we're not white people yet. Yep. You know, like that's exactly that's, right. You know, when, when you say white person, uh, even when I was a kid in the eighties, I don't think Italian Americans necessarily felt included in that group. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, this idea we were classified even statistically as this idea of white ethnic Italians, Poles, Jews, you know, they're, 
they're sort of white but not white. And this is, Sinatra is the representative of that. So he's kind of a figure, for better or worse, that's going to take us through a lot of this era. And we start to see real awareness that we're evolving as an ethnic group, but we're not forming the organs of community that are going to make us a strong one. So, you know, we, we have the size, we have the beginnings of economic impact, we have the cultural acceptance, we don't have the mechanisms of real power or strength in the country. So it's in 1967 that a bunch of Italian Americans get together and Frank Sinatra, in serving as the honorary chairman, uh, creates this organization called the American Italian Anti-Defamation League. And the idea is you're starting to see depictions on TV of the mob, and you know, you've had the Kefauver trials, which we didn't even talk about, but the great mafia trials of the 50s um, exposed this whole thing to a wider United States audience, and it's a huge media sensation. And there's a lot of Italian-Americans who start for the first time to feel like, okay, we need a national organization. So they create this organization. They have a huge concert in Madison Square Garden. I have like a bunch of souvenir programs and stuff. Every single singer of any consequence is there. And they raise a ton of money. And believe it or not, they're sued shortly thereafter by the Anti-Defamation League, the Jewish Anti-Defamation League, for the name. And they're forced to rename it. And they try to rename it. I swear to God, yeah. They changed the because name. they're the American Italian Anti-Defamation yeah. League. They're sued by the, J- the American Jew- the, the, Jewish yeah, the, Anti-Defamation League. The real Defamation League. So the phrase Anti-Defamation League is... Is trademarked. This is 67 project. So they close. And this all this momentum sort of peters out. It's a shame. Uh, at this same time, you have what I think fundamentally changes the story yet again, which is the release and the popularity of The Godfather. And The Godfather becomes a, a huge bestseller. Mario Puzo is a struggling writer. Um, this is his... He, I, from The way I understand it, he kind of wasn't in love with doing a piece like this. He he, he really saw it as like a Yeah, a he, wanted grand, to make a, he wanted to make a name and make some money. Yeah, it was, so like, his, it was like, he, like it's a commercial sellout, yeah. kind of. Which, as a writer, you can like empathize with. Like, you wrote, you wrote a beautiful book in The uh, Fortunate Pilgrim. Yeah. And um, you you did your art piece, and it didn't make the splash you wanted it to. And so you're like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna give the people what they want. Yeah. And boy, did he! This is like Tim Burton's uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I think you know, it's like okay, I've done. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. No, not at all. On the Italian American yeah, Power not, Hour. Not quality. <laughs> but The Godfather comes out and is made into a huge blockbuster movie. Um, you know, everybody knows it. All the big stars of the era. It's a big piece in Hollywood in, in its development. And um, shortly thereafter, you get a, a, a considerable amount of kickback from the Italian American community about the mafia stereotypes. And probably the last time we ever actually protested. Yeah, I, <laughs> I think it's. I think it's I one mean, of the last you times. You can see yeah. clips of people yeah, so protesting. Many, so many people loved it too. Well, of course, that's, so, uh, we go back to the, what we were talking about earlier, which is what you know, saying Gay Talese said we're like almost our own worst enemy. Well, before we talk about the the history of the Godfather and what it means and what it leads to in the community organizing, let's talk about it because I, I at some point we're going to have to do an episode. The Godfather, the Godfather. its own episode. It's got to have. It. It's got to have its own episode at some point. We should bring Tom Centipietro back. He it was on uh, the Italian American podcast earlier. He wrote the 
Godfather effect. Yeah, it's just phenomenal half book. memoir, half kind yeah. of biography. I don't know that Godfather. much about it. Can you just like for my benefit and for those? Listening? Yeah, it's it's like a half, and we'll link, of course, to that that show in the show yeah. notes. But it's it's his own memoir of growing up waspy. I'm pretty sure his own words, but realize, but also being Italian American, and kind of also coming back around to realizing that he was Italian American, and he discovered the Godfather, and that that gave him this awareness that he was Italian. So, like, that's a perfect actually dovetail to talk about the good and bad of that movie, right? He grew up. Um, in like an affluent community, the movie, the played movie. a lot of tennis. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't eating bacala. He wasn't eating broccoli rabe. He was very like quote unquote white. And then he he says he he literally had like a transformative moment when he went and saw The Godfather, and something in him like broke apart. And then he spent like the rest of his life like identifying his, with his Italian side and researching. And the book is a kind of a memoir on that, but it's also the story of how the movie was made, etc. He's also just a terrific guy, and our talk was so genuine. I remains one of He's my favorite. He's a phenomenal episodes. human being and just super smart and kind guy, and he would be wonderful for us. Yeah, to we should bring like him this. back and talk about it. And it's worth its own show. Okay. But I mean, like, I think for a few minutes to, to dig into it, I think the interesting thing about The Godfather is part of it's become like life imitating art. Yeah. Like I think a lot of people now do see that as their sort of uh, creation myth mm-hmm. or some version mm-hmm. of their own history. But for me, I saw it later in life and I kind of hesitated because I was, I spent a lot of my early teens and, and uh, young adulthood active in the Italian American community. And I didn't want to watch these things. I felt like it was like, you know, I don't want to support this. Mm-hmm. And, and when I finally watched it, I remember thinking, you know, this is very familiar. There is, if you take out what they do for a exactly. living, there's a lot about that, the cadences, the sounds, the clamor that did seem familiar, you know? Well, I think you could say the same thing about anything like that. Like I the was Sopranos. Or something. Mm-hmm. I, I, but even non-Italian stuff. Yes, but non-Italian. Yeah, of course. It's just like, uh, you know, when if you look at the Sopranos, it's like, you know, you can't deny that Edie Falco yeah. and James Gandolfini interpreted yes. a, a, an Italian-American couple from northern New Jersey very, very well. Like, I, I actually, my first job as a kid was being an extra on the first season of Sopranos. So I always viewed that through a very different lens and through like, and I remember reading like um, a interview with Dominic Chianese and uh, and that he views these things, uh, even though he is a diehard Italian-American, very active in the community, um, he just views these things as art. Yeah. And even the filmmaker Nancy Savoca, who made the, the film True Love uh, that was set in the Bronx and stuff, She's like, I don't have a problem with a good film made about the mob. Yeah, you know, it, it's something. That I don't think. I don't think the Sopranos was a mob movie. Nor do I think that the the, the Godfather was. I think that that was the patina that had to be painted. Yes. I think you're totally right. Totally right. The family story. Yes. I, yeah. It's I mean, all about the dysfunctional Italian family. Yes. But and, but and people get too caught up with that. It, it's this negative stereotype, and it's it's just this negative thing, and it's just these uh these people. It's just uh the way that we right. That I wonder we if it's talk a, and do things and whatever. I think that's uh, what you have to like the mannerisms and stuff. When you when you focus on like the character study and the character interpretation, it becomes a very different conversation. You know, people want to make it about violence and guns and if you take if you take in my my opinion if you want to explain the entire godfather 
The key moment is when uh, Vito Corleone, after he takes out Fanucci, sits on the front steps of the Feast of St. Rocco and puts Michael on his lap and says, Michael, your father loved you very much. And it ties in that the reason why he killed Fanucci was to protect his son. Yeah. Because they attempted to kill him in Sicily mm -hmm. because of his father. Yeah. His mother takes the hit to protect the son. Yeah. And so, to me, the whole, the whole, everything comes back to, I'm doing these terrible things to protect you because I love you. Wow, that's the most profound thing you've said. I know, I, and I just got like, I got a little chills. chills. Yeah, that's listening. Very, yeah, that's amazing. All right, that was that was yeah, that was on. It, it, it's very you. difficult for people today in 2018 to sympathize with yeah. those kinds of choices. Yeah, that's so that's you know, so true. I think you have to have a good understanding of what history was like for for the Southern Italian and the Southern Italian American yeah. at the time to sympathize with those sorts of choices. Wow, another brilliant point. You're absolutely right. That context oh, is here. completely lost. And I think, I, I mean, I don't want to, I, I'm excited about doing a show about this. Maybe it's the next one we'll record. But yeah, I, I think this movie deserves um, a lot of objective analysis in our community because it is, it is good and bad and everything in between for who we are. And in certain ways, it is a creation myth. And in certain ways, it is a huge ball and chain around our neck as we yeah. go forward. And I, and I think that there's so many angles to come uh, at it from. I mean, you know, in the Italian Americans, I think it's the the series, the Italian Americans, and Maria Lorino wrote the the book. I think it's John Turturro who says that his father loved The Godfather, and he's and he says something along the lines of, "It was like they were the Kennedys for the Italians." Yeah. it's strange, isn't it? My and I actually guess that as well. Yeah, no, no, yeah, we watched it as a family. We oh it. I think it's safe to say for me now that I'm not actively working within the community that. The more I watch it, and I do actually rewatch it sometimes, the more I love it because, you know, look, I, again, we reference the Italian Americans documentary that John Maggio made so brilliantly and really informs a lot of these shows on history. Um, he had Antonin Scalia, the first Italian American mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Supreme Court justice. Nobody more impeccable yes. in the law and order camp than this guy. And he said, I watched the scene where they're eating, and they the lighting looks like I think I remembered my grandmother's house. Yep. She, they had my grandmother's plates. Yep. I mean, you know, so much went into this. And, and and it was the first time, too. You know, Puzo is an Italian-American writer. Uh, Coppola, the passion of Italian-American. I know. think that's why I can stomach it, because you know my feelings about some other movies that were not written or made by Italians that right, depict but you, Italians. I'm sorry, but you can't deny that Moonstruck, oh, the, the kitchen. Oh, I agree. Room. I'm sorry. I love Moonstruck. The, the, that's another That's another. Okay, reference. I mean, for I came from that neighborhood. Yeah. Like, my, my family came from that neighborhood, <laughs> and I get chills when I when I see I that. Moonstruck. When I see that setting, it's, it's so appropriate. I don't. It's so, like... <laughs> But you're not from, like, uh, uh, trust me, like, I'm from there. They, it, they got it right. Like, uh, John Patrick right. and Norman Jewison got it very, very well, right. Well, I want to put the pin in this because, folks, yeah. okay, yeah. That, that's a great that. teaser trailer. We'll there are a that. lot of episodes. So, P.S., this is the kind of stuff we argue about on our group texts. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Like, we talk about this. this. This is a real conversation, but like, this is are not. Are you crazy? Are friends? <laughs> We need to do a movie episode. Have we met? I'll bring my boxing gloves. Yes. I'll oh, bring we, my we got to do it. And you know what, folks? If you're out there, write us back. Tell us which movies you want us to analyze and watch together because yeah, there's so many good idea. ones. And we'd love to know what, what is what, the greatest American movie? Oh, oh, no, no. I can't oh, even God. begin. We know what it is. Wait, we're getting off track. All right, let's, let's go back on topic. Old. No, I don't understand you guys watch these movies. I really don't. I have such. I have. I don't know if I'm old school. I can't wait for this episode. Yeah, it's going to be. So we're, right. we're getting off track. Let's go. No, that's going to be a really good episode. It's going to be a great episode. We're going to need the soundproof in the new. 
in the new yeah. studio for that. I know, I'm going to be on by myself, though, fighting No, I, I love it. I'll be objective. I'll be the moderator. I mean, look, we could talk for days about movies, The Godfather, and, and, and there were these topics, and I love them. But the truth of the matter is, the reason we bring up The Godfather really here, obviously because it's probably the most influential depiction in terms of popular without perception, without, without a doubt. But interestingly enough, we're talking now a little bit about this era in our community history, the late 60s to the late 70s, where we become an institutional community. And the reason I bring up The Godfather is because after the failure of the Anti-Defamation League, you have the arrival on the scene of an organization called the Italian-American Civil Rights League. And the Italian-American Civil Rights League is, is born really out of the Godfather, because what starts to happen is the, the idea of the mafia in the popular conception starts to grow, and it's concurrent to a, a crackdown on the actual uh, mob in the United States. And the son of mob boss Joe Colombo is arrested for melting down silver coins, which is illegal, right? Because the weight changes in value, blah, 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 because we're not pegged to the real value of the of the metals anymore. And he's arrested for melting down coins. And his father decides here in Brooklyn that the best way to combat this is instead of keeping your head down, raising it up and shouting that there is no mob and we Italian-Americans are being um, discriminated against based on a myth. And so he starts the Italian-American Civil Rights League. In 1970, he creates Italian Unity Day, has a protest in Columbus Circle in Manhattan. How many people were there, John? Hundreds of thousands of people. Right. They say that many? Hundreds yes. of thousands. And, and look, many people from this neighborhood. My grandfather went to the first one. It was... It was like a mandatory. I mean, but what's what's the irony of that? The irony of that is that they're out there protesting on behalf of a mobster. Exactly. But here's the beauty of the irony to me: the reason that this thing has such legs in my mind is because there's such a gaping hole in our community for institutional leadership Still. that anything that comes out is going to garner attention because people do feel discriminated against, and they have been discriminated. Yeah, but against. there was also self-inflicted martyrdom. Oh, fair. And, I, and, and if anybody, uh, there's someone out there who wants to contend with that. My grandmother went ballistic when John Gotti was arrested, and I remember my grandmother like yelling at the television. And this is the 1980s, and I'm like, he's a criminal. And my grandmother's like, but he's Italian. Like, <laughs> <laughs> and my grandmother's like, they always go after the Italian. Like, there's other people to go after, like, like, and it completely like, anything that John Gotti did was completely. It's like Robin Hood. Yeah, but look, Pablo Escobar was called Robin Hood as well. I mean, but I'm saying, like, for the people out there, like, we voluntarily also have portrayed people of that, those kind of people, into these kind of victimization roles. And I mean, really, can we blame outside people looking at that? I mean, I went to high school in a very tiny American area, and... I remember two kids coming to school with uh, G's on their baseball caps with John Gotti when he was arre arrested. Jeez. Because, you know, and people are like, well, John Gotti, you know, he was a sharp dresser. You know, he was always well put together. I mean, you know, okay. I mean, if but that's what qualifies. they call him Teflon Don? Teflon Don? Sure, but I'm saying, like, we also have espoused that. 
Yeah. And we have to be willing to accept the pushback that comes from that. Well, listen, mafia mm. culture comes from a place that you or I or he, he, none of us could ever really understand. Like the, the, My the grandmother's th- defense of it was, you don't have to get involved in it, and the people get involved in it know what's going to happen. Yeah, you and they went after John Gotti because he was a tank. You live by the sword. You know, people argue they didn't hurt other people. It yeah. was, a, it was you know, the, the neighborhoods were safer when they yeah. were in power, in charge. Oh, you still hear that organized. all the time. Yeah, I Things. do too. Yeah. Life was better. And we could all argue lessons in Ozone Park. My I, think, I think, you know, I think this group of people could actually make the argument um, for some aspects that life was just different. We we were governed by a different set of rules, yes. a different set of standards. Well, what does that tell us about our own problems with democratic government? Yeah, yeah we don't we trust it. We don't trust it. We don't trust it. a dictator, yeah. and you can do bad stuff as long as you take care of it. Yes, yeah, true. I mean, you know... You know what my mother says? My, my nonna, my nonna Lulorato used to say, people would ask her who she was going to vote for in the election, and she would say, whoever feeds me. Yeah. That's fair. Meaning, meaning, meaning whoever... Francia, Spagna... Who protects you? These Whoever gives me the means to, to eat, that's who I'll vote people for. People felt more protected by a figure like John Gotti than they felt threatened by Hold on, look at yeah. our boys. We're talking to what um, Professor Tamboy, Dr. Tamboy would call the tribe. And this is an Italian-American conversation. Yeah. I would imagine probably close to 100% of the listeners are Italian-American. Take Scandinavian people from Minnesota and let them hear this. <laughs> yeah, you're right. We like a strong man, Mussolini, John Gotti. Yeah. Hey, as long as I eat, I mean, are, are we not a self-defining right. uh, stereotype? No, Can right. I just give you a quick like asterisk to what he just said really quickly? Because I remember talking about this with... with Tom Pietro. Um, he thinks the reason the God, or it's not just him actually, I think it's a popular idea that actually the reason the Godfather was so popular was because it was, especially in that time, was it the 60s, the 70s? Yeah, 70s. Late, 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 I mean, 69 in the book. Okay, same. Yes, so people, that's what they wanted. They wanted to see a man being decisive in control, that there was a set of rules. These that are you archetypes. Lived archetypes. These are archetypes, exactly. Yeah. And with the archetypes, I mean, I, this is a for me a, a whole, not even an episode, a it's whole a series. Show. Yeah, yeah. The archetypes missing from our culture, being so eroded, mm. that that does not make us feel good or safe. We don't know what's going on. Yeah. And then here comes Don Corleone. Yeah. And suddenly you're in a world where it all makes sense. Yeah. Moral, not moral, doesn't matter anymore. It makes sense. There's rules. Yeah. There's an ethic. Yeah. You, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. You don't do this, you do this. This is wrong, this is right. People are craving that. But the hierarchical structure is so Sicilian. You know, I, I, I've said this before, that, this, that I think that the Godfather is a Sicilian movie. And I think well, that a lot yeah, of people agree with that. <laughs> and I think that Sopranos, Fatso, they're, they're, they're much more reflective of Campania. They are. There's a silliness. Tony Sopranos. Tony Sopranos from my window, you can see it. Because I don't know. Maybe that. I have Sicilian in me because I think I'm. I think that my vital difference between what you guys see and I see is I don't like the silliness. I have like um, like I am very. I can laugh at a lot of stuff. 
and not take myself okay, very no, seriously. Let me, but with certain things, I'm like, no, I'm not all right with this. Yes. With dignity. Because dignity yeah. you awesome. feel that Don DeLuise Absolutely. crying over the pot of gravy is lacking, is lacking in dignity. Oh, my right. gosh. That's it, Pat. Yeah. Pat the sage. No, well, now here, it. but now, but okay. Dignity. Perfect transition to, to talk about the, the, the Civil Rights League. Because is. that is, for better or worse, what Joe Colombo, an organized crime mob boss, brings to the table for a community that doesn't feel it has it dignity, a voice, a unified voice, the idea that in, respect. in not respect, respect, that in numbers we can do things. And you know what? In 1970, shutting down the city by pointing out how many Italian Americans run businesses. So, you know, a, a huge portion of the city was closed down. My grandfather was a trucker. All the Italian American truck drivers went to Unity Day. So nothing got delivered. We shut down the city. Was it for the right reasons? Was it manipulation? That's left to the history books, but it did show some sense of our size and potential power. So I, I would credit the Civil Rights League with being but I think a, it was probably the peak. I think it was the peak. I think, I think yeah. the day after was the beginning of the decline. Well, let's go into what happens. Now you've got hundreds of thousands of Italian Americans around the city and around the country. I mean, I have friends from Boston um, who talk to me about uh, handing out stickers for cars throughout the neighborhoods. Everybody had the Civil Rights League logo. It was a big number one across the map of the United States because we Italians could be number one if we were unified. And the idea was that, you know, together we're number one. And it was all over the eastern seaboard, certainly. And you get huge funds raised, big gala events, events all over the country, a lot of national attention, a lot of media coverage. There's, there's Time magazine, Newsweek magazines, all about this. The next year, they go to repeat Unity Day, and it has a little bit of a diminished audience, a little bit less uh, of a turnout. And Colombo is assassinated by the other families in New York for sticking his head out and uh, bringing too much attention to what they were doing under the table for so many years. And he's shot at Unity Day in the middle of Columbus Circle. And uh, it's the end, obviously. The, I mean, how uh, disgraceful. But how appropriate to the story. How appropriate, right? disgraceful, yeah. all wrapped into one. And, and the idea that if you're if you're pegging yourself to something that is disingenuous, it's, you know, not to talk about movies anymore, but like it's almost like, you know, Scorsese takes us the journey in Casino and Goodfellas. You start with this like very appealing, glorious, fun rides of these guys that look like they're really dapper, and in the end, it's just self-destruction, disgusting. And that's that's this story. So I want to do another episode on the Civil Rights League because I, I, it's a topic that I've studied extensively, and I, I love the history. I think the Civil Rights would be a whole series. It's a great There's dichotomy. So many, yeah. You know, my, my take on that period is that that's my grandparents' generation, and they were the generation that was called Guinness. So if you take the children that were born right before World War One and right after World War One, they received a lot of the. Um, I probably think the earlier group received stuff like you know they go to the not apply the Italians are like you know Italian boys not welcome stuff like that. But they were mocked yeah. and until the war kind of sanitized them. Yeah. They were a they were a considered a separate subgroup of national whatever you want to call it. I think they were so riled up because they had that kind of sting of discrimination. It doesn't leave you. Yeah. Especially when you feel it as a kid. You know, people mocking. You know, I mean, if you're in the Italian community long enough, especially with that generation, many of whom have unfortunately passed on now, they will tell you about, you know, the people who made fun of their parents, the people who made fun of broken English, the ones who made fun of their names or whatever in school. I think the boomers didn't get one one millionth of what their parents yeah. suffered. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that. And the lack of persecution 
was the tool that dissipated within themselves their sense of attainment. Wow. Yeah. That's why it could, I love when he does that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You're right. That's why it peaked, and then we were victims of our own success. In, in exactly. Yes. You're absolutely right. It's like a complacency. Yeah. That comes from. Sure. Because why am I that different? Well, but here's here's the know. beauty of it, right? So it is this sort of like weird early peak, right? What we peak in this idea of like going after our piece of the pie at the same time as uh, the upcoming generation of Italian Americans have sort of had their piece of the pie silently. They didn't have to fight for it. They assimilated into it. So on the heels of the assassination, 1971, New York Magazine, an article that really transformed my appreciation of our community and taught me a whole version that I didn't understand. Nicholas Pileggi, who's known, better known as a screen, uh, as the writer of um, Goodfellas and, and Casino, Writes this article and called related to Kate Toulouse. And related to Kate Toulouse. Yeah, I, I have no idea. Cousin. That's why I got. I didn't yep. know that. Wow. Yeah. He learns something every day. Okay. Well, I mean, this guy, phenomenal writer. I, I think screenplays aside, this article is titled "The Resorgimento of Italian Power: The Red, White, and Greening of America," and it's all about how we've we've just seen this arrival on the national stage as a sort of community organizational force. But at the same time, when he digs into the statistics and points out that we are actually far behind every other quote-unquote white ethnic group in terms of the hallmarks of assimilation, we're the least educated at this point. We do not yeah. have the college. Uh, uh, I, I think this is it. I 1971. 1971. I think that's a whole series. Oh yeah, it is. Time it is. It's another. We 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 spin a lot that we were so pro education. We were not. We were not. We were not. And some families absolutely were, but as a community, no. Statistically, we were, we were not. not. We, we were not moving out of our neighborhoods. Right. We had the least mobility rate in terms of suburbanization. Sure. But we had different conversation. It is. But I'm, I'm getting to the case. bigger sure. point in that, like he, he points out, my alma mater, Fordham. Right in the Bronx, which is a huge Italian American community in the city of New York, the biggest in the country. In '71, when he writes the article, I'm going to get the numbers wrong. I don't have it in front of me, but I, I think it was something like, you know, 50 plus percent of the student body at Fordham was Italian American, and there's only six professors of Italian American heritage on, on the faculty. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're talking about a huge issue with assimilation, and he points it out in this brilliant article, and, and we can reference to the article if it's out there. Um, online. Um, if not, I highly recommend going out and getting it. I mean, uh, go on eBay, see if you can find it. It is, to me, a must read. And uh, it, it really proves that something's just not happening to bring us to that final phase. And it's no coincidence that on the heels of this, in 1975, 19 Italian Americans, led by Monsignor Gino Baroni, who was appointed the first head of HUD, the uh, Office of Housing and Urban Development in, uh, in the White House, um, this Catholic priest, community organizer, very active in a lot of progressive um, movements in, in that era, sits down in Washington with 18 other Italian Americans and forms what is at first called the Italian American Foundation and will shortly thereafter be changed to the National Italian American Foundation. And it's April of 1975 that NIAF. Uh, is founded. And everybody knows I have a soft spot in my heart for an organization that I was a member of from when I was 15 and was very fortunate to be the president of for six years. Um, NIAF is different than the other groups when it's founded. It's not founded as a mutual aid society. It's not founded in protest. It's founded in the idea that through intelligent community organization, in knowing what to not fight for or yell for, but advocate for in an organized and uh, productive and proactive way, 
we can better ourselves as a community. So it's about, you know, why are there not more Italian-Americans appointed positions in the cabinet of the presidential administrations? Why are there no, not, not as many professors, dot, 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 down the line? And um, it's very quick that this organization becomes the most important national voice for Italian-Americans. And uh, it's, it's indicative of how different a position we're in. But now we're talking about, you know, getting an Italian-American uh, appointed secretary of state and not, you know, uh, stop calling us mafiosa. And I think that really speaks volumes about where we go as a people. Uh, the late 70s come. Uh, we have, the, you know, the further integration of who we are into the popular culture. And the 80s really is considered the, the decade of the Italian-American. I mean, if you think about all the stuff that happened in our community in the 80s uh, and, and into the 90s, you have the arrival on the national stage of such prominent figures. Yeah, but can I question that one? Yeah, go ahead. What? And I know where you're going with this. We use non-Italian-American metrics to say, well, that was our decade because we arrived, like Scalia. Scalia's on the Supreme Court, and Geraldine Ferraro runs for vice president, and Mario Cuomo's governor of New York. And that's what we use as a barometer of our arrival. Why would I personally have an issue with that because I think it's not us. If we're going to survive as being us, and us is not going to turn into them, where Italian-American identity is just a, a check on a DNA test, and not an actual thought or lifestyle, whatever. The key that holds us together is family. So we've never, we're not, I don't feel we're the kind of people, we started to fail when we started to use their metrics on success. Mm. So we started to say, okay, we have a governor, we have this and we have that, and they like us now. But what's our family relationship? You know, where, where, are we? Yeah. where are we? Yeah. And I think that we, we beat ourselves up because we talk about education and other stuff. We're, ju we're judging ourselves by their value scale. Yeah, that's fair. And I, I don't see... Yeah, we had an Italian-American governor in New York that was a prominent politician on a national stage. She probably was probably... Oh, the closest we've had to a viable national candidate for president. Um, yeah, we had, you know, all the other things. And so what? I'm like, who cares? Yeah. So I'm like, okay, like, they, they let us go on a ticket now for national office. Well, I mean, I think you're right. I think that the, I think that's exactly the point, and that's the larger point of why we have these shows, which is like, to what end is all this stuff? Because I think it gets back to respect. Yeah. I'm respected. Yeah. They respect That's us. absolutely right. But I think that's a very post-assimilation comment. And, and because we are like a similar generation and we are mentally on the same page, largely in terms of our values and stuff, we almost like uh, are able to have that luxury of being that old school in our thinking because we're coming around the other side. Does that make sense? How did Mario Cole be in New York? Do you know what I mean? Well, I mean, yeah. yeah I'm old enough. To I get what both of you are saying. Some of us might want to be senators and, and doctors and lawyers and sure, congressmen that, that, and governors okay, and presidents. Okay, so if you, want, if you want to say... Well, I, I, what you're saying is interesting because I think it's what, what the... I mean, not to get too political, but I think it's what the nation faced after eight years of Barack Obama's presidency when you would argue that, you know, did, did having the first African-American president transform the life of African Americans for the but, better, but, and, and but my my counter my counter argument is if you want to, to answer what the Lord said, if you want to say okay, having an Italian American governor of New York, or having an Italian American mayor of Providence, Buddy Santi, transport Providence, 
or um, you know Geraldine Ferraro, or Square. Having these people there proves that the discrimination has dissipated. Where having a bell on the end of your name is no longer a bar to public offering. One hundred percent, I will agree with you that that is a milestone we reached in the eighties. And maybe even more so, Italian-Americans were chosen because Italian-Americans were seen as a voting bloc. Yeah. Which I don't know if it's a positive reason or a negative reason. That's just politics. That's just, That's politics. just politics. But if you want to say the 80s is the time when we began to achieve, in the political sense, uh, accomplishments indicative that we were no longer um, so much the other, that we couldn't be everyone's governor or everyone's Supreme Court justice, or everyone's vice president, that's fine. But I don't see where it goes any further than that. I agree with you. I think that's a, that is a big dichotomy. And again, I think it's the heart of why we do these shows. It's like we've had this experience, and what where has it brought us? You know, it's the same thing as, again, you know, John Maggio's film points out. It's like we fought so hard for our place at the table here, and now we turn around and it's like you can't, find time for Sunday macaroni and you don't know your cousin. People were embarrassed of it. There, there was, there were, I think there's two camps. If you want to take the 1970s and the Italian-American Community Day, there was the old, there were the, the defenders, mm-hmm. or the Orthodox, who stayed in downtown Jersey City or stayed in Red Hook and Bensonhurst, more on Arthur Avenue, and they were, the, I'm self-identifying Italian, right? And then there was the group that had worked very hard to move into the suburbs to join the country club to go out to dinner on a Sunday afternoon, or to go for a drive, or, you know, they didn't give their kids their, their parents' names because they were too Italian sounding. We don't talk about them. The people who worked very hard to whitewash their own identity, or who chose to walk away from it, which was very much their privilege and very much their choice in America. But we kind of spin like it was, it, was, it was unified. There were people who happily walked away from it. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I talked to somebody one time who said, like, that when they moved out to the suburbs, they just didn't have time to go back to their mother's house in Macaroni. Like, well, you know, we didn't have time to look it up because we kind of made it. Because the guy who stood in the neighborhood because he couldn't afford to buy the house right. in the suburbs, right. he was still eating down mom's basement. Like, that's provincial to go have that's family. That's provincial, right. You know, family I, have, I, got, I got a good degree from the local college right. after I got out of service, and I, I got that good job. And, you know, and my, my wife's a school teacher. And I'm, I'm not mocking those people. There's people who said they played golf or they played tennis on Sunday morning. Exactly. They kind of felt it was a mark of accomplishment not to be down in their mother's basement. And they kind of snickered a little bit at their cousin who stood behind who couldn't afford to leave. We don't talk about that. How many of them are listening here? There's a group that needs to be called out. They're like the people who built the projects. They tore down the neighborhood and built up the housing projects. There has to be some sort of accountability. And there's a lot of people who refuse to take their ownership on the destruction of the Italian-American community in the 70s and 80s. I don't think you're wrong. I really, I don't. I mean, it's funny. The way I outlined this episode was to go through the 80s, and I did and still do want to talk about the specific stories, a little bit on Scalia and Leah Iacocca and Geraldine Ferrar and things like that. Their personal but, stories are great. Yeah, but, but, but my stories. point is, what I what I led to at the end of it is, where are we now? What does all this mean? What has it made us? And this is exactly this discussion. Where are we? What is the Italian community? And that, there is no episode for that. That's, that's the overarching everything to what we do. Where are we as a people in a community? I mean, I think... That's what this is leading to. What did all of this mean? Where did, where did we come from in that first episode? Uh, we started uh, three episodes ago. Where have we arrived? And, you know, let's take a second to just talk about the specifics. Um, 
I, I think Lee Iacocca is a phenomenal story because he's, uh, you know, clearly an Italian American businessman, takes a major American blue chip firm and, and saves it. And it's this great success story. And he's very active in the community and he gives back. Um, I think Antonin Scalia being appointed to really, I mean, the Supreme Court, you, you can't argue the importance, obviously, but being appointed for a community that has had issues around uh, law and order and, and you know criminal justice as a such negative a stereotype. When you read when you read the guy, that's a Sicilian, right there. It's a Sicilian court. It's like, yeah. and he said in, in many right many now. interviews, you know, he was shocked to receive the letters he did from so many Italian Americans who related to his um, his appointment and what it meant for our reputation, and and, and he he felt this this responsibility to them. Um, Geraldine Ferraro. I mean, Dolores, you, you and I recently off mic talked for a while about Geraldine Ferraro. Yeah. And, you know, look, you are a strong Italian-American female, a lot of accomplishments, and you're in public service at this point. What does she mean to you as uh, a figure? And as you dug into her history, let's talk a little bit about her, because it's not just having the first female vice presidential candidate. People don't talk about the fact that she received a ton of pushback based on her heritage. And I think that that's something we should bring up. Yeah, and I think, see, for me, from where I stand, I think as an Italian-American woman and where I am right now, I, I think I see in Geraldine Ferraro's story also a lot of things that relate to where we are now. And, and Pat, I said earlier to him that that's a very post-assimilation comment, right, what he had made, which is to say, you know, something I think a lot of people don't know, and I gave a talk recently about Italian-American women, and I mentioned this, which is that Geraldine Ferraro didn't get her first major um, job, and I'm forgetting what it is right now full-time, until she was in her late 30s, 38, because she stayed home for 13 years to raise her kids. Yeah. And to me, that's like a very important Italian-American message. Yeah. Uh, she took her family very seriously. She made sacrifices for her family, but she also achieved, like in her own right, um, a lot. And as the first female vice presidential candidate, and also the first Italian American vice presidential candidate, and if I think the last, if yeah. I'm remembering correctly, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. What happened was at some point, she people loved her. She was doing very well, and then. You know, they asked her husband, who they filed taxes separately to release his own. And the long story short is there became all this innuendo, not surprisingly, that um, uh, that her husband had uh, ties to the mafia, yeah. which is what happens and what people do when Italian-Americans tend to run for yeah. high office. Is And still happens today. And it I mean, still happens today. Tons of Italian-American candidates, uh, even in the last election, were weeks removed from uh, the, a very contentious midterm election. And there were reports uh, in New York, there were reports in Ohio of Italian-Americans who were running for Congress or different offices whose opponents were smearing them in terms of the mafia. Right. Judge Janet DeFiore, she is the highest judge in the state of New York, recently went to an event and there were... Uh, protesters outside and they were wearing t-shirts that said OCA and then it said um, Organized Crime Association. Jeez. And they were, they, they claim they were punning off of Office of Court Administration, which DeFiori, Judge DeFiori is the head of, mm. but it's, it said Organized it's Crime Association and here she is, the highest judge in the state. 
uh, which has the highest population of Italian Americans in the country, and she's still getting a yeah, little because, elbow because, here and there yeah. and innuendo that she's involved and tied to the mob. I mean, P.S. She's the first Italian American to ever hold that office. And and that's a, that, that's the exact same thing that that I come back to with Geraldine Ferraro. Like, this is the first female on a major ticket, vice presidential candidate, glass ceiling shattered, earth shaking. I mean, we look. Reagan was in a pretty good position to win that election. He won it by a massive landslide. He only lost one state. Um, but the fact that so much of it was distracted by these racist right. discriminations around her Italianness should not be lost. Because right. if it was, I believe, any other ethnicity, they would have never felt comfortable with these kind of accusations around a candidate who was in such a unique position. It just could not have entered. In, in my mind, it couldn't have. And she would have been celebrated. Yeah, yeah, far differently, far differently than she was. And this is a woman who, whatever your politics, was a good woman. And yeah, that's, that's a real tragedy to me. Say, yeah. yeah, a good and active you know in the community. I did. I met her a couple of times. I mean, but was it true? No, no, no. no. It's no. just something people no. say. Just, and just you know. Yeah, to tear her down, and, yeah. and it worked. Yeah, and it worked. I mean, it didn't. It wasn't. It didn't the cost old- the election. Because the election. I, I don't think I was alive for that. Yeah, well, he I wasn't going to win that election. No, that election. but it worked in terms of distracting and changing the debate, and that's the sad truth. And I think that that feeds right into why I want to handle Mario Cuomo last, because Mario Cuomo, you could say what you want about his politics, and it doesn't matter what the audience feels. Uh, Mario Cuomo, no matter where you are in the political spectrum, as an Italian American, for me. Um, I love, first and foremost, that he was so proud of his heritage and put the community at the forefront of his mind in a lot of ways. He was incredibly generous at this time. If you liked or didn't like his politics, he was definitely somebody who like showed you the work in his math. You knew where it came from. You knew what was inspiring his positions. And he was an incredibly popular governor in New York and gave... The keynote address at the Democratic National Convention, which is still one of the greatest speeches, I think, ever. And he was really seen as the next viable Democratic candidate. And he comes up against Bill Clinton in 1992. He's not not announced a candidacy, but he's the, the favorite. There's all these draft Cuomo campaigns, and he's seen as the guy that can beat Bush. He gets where the country's going, and he's obviously a popular orator. And as he's considering his whether or not he should run... Um, Bill Clinton, who's a dark horse candidate at this point to even become the nominee. I mean, governor of Arkansas, no national profile whatsoever, young guy. Uh, Clinton lets out the remark that he's godfather-like. And for whatever reason, Mario Cuomo decides that he's not going to run for an office that everybody kind of thinks could be his on a silver platter. And some people will say that it's because he was worried about, um, you know, Uh, relations uh, in his family and people that they knew or whatever that is, I have no idea. But I remember being a kid and sitting with my dad watching the evening news and my dad was a a fan of George Bush, fan of his military service, fan of the foreign policy of the Reagan administration. And um, here comes Mario Cuomo, who he was also a fan of. And my dad sits me down in front of the podium, the empty podium, where we think he's going to announce his candidacy. And there's a plane on the tarmac to, you know, go to New Hampshire. And you were at the event. No, no, we're we're in my living room oh. watching TV. So he sat you down in front of the podium. On the TV screen, excuse me. Oh, okay. And he sits me down and he says to me, uh, "You're going to see Governor Cuomo. 
he's going to be the first Italian American president. And I remember thinking my dad was a sophisticated guy and, you know, it wasn't about ethnicity, but it meant something to us. And he, of course, announced that he was not going to run. And uh, he announced that he was not, he was not going to run. And and it was like morning in my house. There were no consequences to the Clintons. None. For what they said about the Cuomo's. None. None, none, none. And and Mario Cuomo's politics aside, okay, 100%, Republican or Democratic, who else could he make those comments about and get away with? And we as a community allowed them, allowed them to say that with absolutely no repercussions. Why is that? Because we can be real idiots, in my opinion. I think we do that a lot. I think that that's... I mean, it was insulting. It was absolutely insulting. And I always, gave them a complete I always say to people, when, when people make these con- these slurs about our community, sub out Italian-American for any other ethnic group. I can't And then it. you get the full impact. Yeah. Yes. Then, I don't know why that is, but even I can do it in my head. Like, sub in any other name, any other group, and then you see, like, nobody would... Ever. It was horrible. It was, and and, us, the Clinton, they still and, and where, where, where is, where, we've never been justified. They've never justified. And, and, I, and I, here's the interesting thing. I, I remember my last year at NIAF, I was, uh, we were in Sicily for our Region of Honor trip. So every year we would go with part of my team and the board of directors and Every year we'd have a special dinner where our trip would meet up with the uh, Ambassador Peter Secchia Voyage Discovery Program, which is NIAF's um, all-expense-paid educational and cultural immersion trip to Italy for Italian-American college students who've never been. And for those of you out there who have Italian-American college students in your family, I highly recommend they apply for this amazing life-changing trip. I actually trip. think applications just opened. That, yeah, I think they Visit did. Visit yeah, so, yeah, absolutely head N-I-A-F. over to NIAF. Yeah. Do it. It's, it'll change your life. And if you are a college student, don't miss this opportunity. But we meet up with these kids. We're in this beautiful um, hotel uh, restaurant in Sicily. And, you know, my role as the president of the organization at the time, I always made a point to spend those evenings meeting all the kids. And I don't know where the topic came up about an Italian-American president. I think we were gearing up for the um, 2016 election and uh, talking about Italian-American candidates. And I went around and asked each of these kids, college students, if they thought if an Italian-American ran for president, a discernible Italian-American, identifiable, you know, got the name, seems familiar, somebody that really cared about the Italian-American community, would you cross party lines and vote for them based on your ethnicity? And to a man or woman, 100% said no. It was not important to them. And that spoke volumes to me. It, It saddened me in a lot of ways because I think of myself as the kind of guy who still today kind of would like to see an Italian-American president. And that's think, another episode. My grandparents' generation, my grandmother went into a voting booth and only voted for ballots at the end of the day. Yeah, I get that. And she proudly said that. My grandmother went down there, took the list, and she just voted for the Italians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I get that. I, I think it, I, I'm not sure if no, not Obama ever voted. But I imagine she would have done the same. Thing. Right. Would have well, I mean, that's something she would totally say. And that, to me, sums up this history series pretty well. Like, and, and but I think it opens the chapter for another show. Yes, that's it's a show in itself. What happens now? You have a generation that cannot possibly grasp why my grandmother only voted for it. Absolutely. 
and how do they continue to self-identify the Italian American? And that's the weird that, dichotomy that's, that's, because that's where it, the academy has to. There, look, the numbers are there, right? We, we talked at the beginning of this sh this series. 18.2 million people self-identified on the census. That's a huge number. This is a great point. And it is a good natural wrapping spot for what I think has been a, a great end to our history series, which is we are a people right now that is numerically, by all standards, clearly still a people that self-identifies. But where are we going and how are we getting there? And the idea that you can go back and pursue Italian citizenship today in a world where that means a greatly different thing than it meant to our grandparents, you know, or, right. or our parents. Italian citizenship to them, in many ways, was a constraint. And now it's an opportunity exactly. as part of a globalized EU and access to a wider world for these young people where you can go and be a part of something on your own terms, which is not organic. You're, you're, you're designing. It's like designer babies. You're designing your version of your Italianness, whereas in the old days it was defined by a group think and what you didn't know you didn't know made you different. And uh, to me, I don't know about the rest of you guys, that's why I dedicated my life. You know, I could have gone into normal work. We all could have done... We became uh, a missionary. I feel like this is a vocation. I could have done so many... It's strange to think about what, what we could all have been. And, and, and can still continue to do. Italian-American. But, but, right, but what we can still continue to do, but we keep coming back to this. You know, I left a paying gig doing this stuff very consciously to come and to, you know, get married and be with my family and work in our family business. And here I am, and it's, you know, a, a long day. But because, because I, this Every is... Every time you think you're out, we pull you back, right back in, Johnny in. boy. And we do this, I think all of us, I could speak for all of us, because... We're mentally ill. <laughs> Fact. Fact. Yeah, check. Most likely, yes. We do it for you guys out there listening. Thank you for listening to us. I hope you come back for part four when we discuss some of the books that we've spoken about here and uh, some other ones that we haven't that are going to be fundamental in your greater Italian-American education. Thanks for listening to The Power Hour, and uh, we hope we didn't give you agita. <laughs> Close with the song. Boom. There's so many people. I don't really believe people are listening. Oh, oh my God, gosh. Here he goes. All right, Patrick. When I eat, he gets a treat like a gonzo. He enjoys every meal, every bite.